and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Stubcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers again, hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and sending our best wishes to Jeff Baldwin, who we hope is back hosting this stud cast very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet, which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. He and his family were putting on WrestleMania-style events back in the 50s and 60s in their territories and packing out baseball stadiums with gigantic wrestling events long before the name WrestleMania was ever uttered. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. Please welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. And Ron, Ron, we have congratulations in order. It is a historic day for studcast. It is the 156th studcast. That is three years of telling your family's wrestling history. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much, Dave. Uh, that's pretty amazing, man. I, I can't believe that myself. Uh, three years ago when I was doing the first one, I thought, well, I might do eight or 10 of these and we'll see how it goes. And, uh, and now look, I'm three years in and, and we've moved all the way from 1901 when my grandfather Roy was born to 1976. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered Roy. We've covered my father. Uh, we've got pretty far into my career and, I'm just really enjoying this, uh, and, I, and I didn't know that that would happen for me. Uh, I really thought that, well, you know, you might not like this, and this might be boring, but I, <laughs> I really am I'm enjoying it because I, I'm having the opportunity to, to tell so much history here that if, if I don't do it and if somebody doesn't do it, it'll all be gone for wrestling fans. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pr- pretty proud of making it for three years now and 156 episodes. And today, this one, I think, is going to be pretty darn good, man, for, for three years in. Well, first of all, thanks for clarifying that you were not there in 1901 when it all began. That was your grandfather. But th- it's three years of talking the talk, and you've done an amazing job. That cranium of yours is loaded with information, and I'm, I'm certain that today's destination is going to be equally fascinating so where are we going today well we're going to go back again uh you know since this is the third year of my studcast you know i'm, I'm kind of going to take us back to the beginning of my family's history for this one then today's training is what we call this segment and, and i'm going to name this studcast this one uh, after the original dutch mantel and a little warning uh, that uh, I use a photo of every one of these studcasts if you see it advertised on social media uh, if you if you pick up the podcast wherever you get it, there's normally a photo that goes with it. Right. And on this photo, I got to give you a little warning, everybody. Uh, it's going to be the original Dutch Mantel, and I can tell you, he's not pretty. I mean, <laughs> you better get ready for ugly <laughs> when you when <laughs> you look at this photo. Ugly. I mean, big time ugly for real. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, this dude is pretty pretty stiff looking. You know, and and these stud cats, you know. Uh, these original photos uh, are really something special, I think, you know, and they're all available on my website, obviously, at TN Stud. But like I say, when you get them on other outlets, uh, you usually get this photo that goes along with every one. 
And uh, that's what this one is. It's all about uh, Dutch Mantel because this is the beginning of, of where we're going to start today. So we're going to begin another today's training lesson, okay? And uh, as, as I said last week, we're going to be shooters again on this one. And we're traveling with Dutch Mantel, the original Dutch Mantel. Uh, for anybody out there listening, you think it's old Dutch that's got all that hair over, all over his body. Uh, it's not that Dutch. This is this is the Dutch from the early 1900s. Dutch Mantell and my grandfather, Roy Welch, in 1922, they're going to take a real long ride across Texas, and that's a big state to ride across. Uh, they're going from Amarillo to Houston, uh, hundreds of miles. They're going there because Dutch got hired by one of two Houston, Texas wrestling promoters. And there's a wrestling war going on in Houston, Texas. There's not even wrestling in a lot of cities in this time frame. But Houston's got two promoters, and they're already having one of the first wrestling wars, maybe the first wrestling war in the history of Texas in 1922. And uh, because they're in a wrestling war, both of these promoters are experiencing the same problem that everybody does in a wrestling war, just about everybody, uh, the Atlanta wrestling war being the only exception I know of. Both of these promoters, they're, they're suffering. Their houses are down. Their wrestlers are not getting much money because they're having a war and people are trying to decide who they want to go see. So uh, they're both beginning to lose money. And so they get together, the two of these promoters, and they make a very unusual bet between the two of them. The bet was that each was going to choose a shooter to represent them and that they're going to promote a shoot. And they're both going to do it. It's not just one of them going to promote it. Both guys agreed, we'll both promote this shoot. And uh, we'll split the gate because it's probably going to be a big crowd. They're going to advertise that the shooters are real and that this wrestling is going to be a real match. And the shooter, whoever wins the match, is going to win what's called the Houston Wrestling War. And the, the promoter that uh, sponsors that shooter is going to win Houston. Literally, the uh, losing promoter agrees that he'll never promote again. This is a heavy, I mean, you know, my, my grandfather, Roy, we, we talked about this uh, working on the Calton. Roy at this point, you know, uh, is on the valley working in the carnival. And uh, he tells me this fascinating story. I'm about 12 years old and we're taking a ride. He used to take me to Memphis every once in a while for him to wrestle or for him to check up the house and bring home the bread and the money. I remember this story. I was probably 12 years old. And uh, let's get back to this crazy bet. I mean, this bet was unique. And, and it was one hell of a way to end a wrestling war. I mean, it's all going to end in one night with one match. And it's going to decide the fate, not just the wrestling promoter. It's going to decide the fate of all his wrestlers. And it's going to decide the fate of, Who's going to handle wrestling, professional wrestling in Houston, Texas, biggest city in Texas? So, you know, I'm sorry I don't remember the promoter's names uh, or even Dutch's opponent, but I sure as hell never forget the story. So for Roy, uh, all this began when Dutch tracks him down at the carnival that he's working at. Roy was actually probably the best shooter that Dutch ever trained. Uh, in fact, Roy says he don't think Dutch trained many people because he didn't want to train people. Uh, in fact, he didn't want to train people so much that he broke Roy's wrist the first time they ever worked out together on purpose. Wow. They broke his wrist on purpose, uh, thinking that he would never come back. And then uh, three months later, he came back. Roy came back and he broke his ribs in the second workout. I mean, he was really determined to, to make Roy quit and not do it. But Roy just kept coming back. And then finally, about two years later, uh, Roy accomplished what was considered, I'm sure, back in those days, unbelievable. He beat Dutch Mantell in a shoot. And uh, once he beat Dutch in a shoot, Dutch told him, he said, I'll never work out with you again. I'll never shoot with you again. He worked out with him, but he wouldn't shoot with him ever again. And uh, that's when Dutch got Roy the job on the carnival. This was about 1920. Now, this story starts about two years later. So Dutch arrives at the carnival and he tells Roy he needs him to go to Houston with him and he needs somebody to watch his back because he's in an extremely dangerous match. And it is just that. I mean, you know, this is a big time shoot and and he can get hurt bad. And there's a lot of other things could happen. He, he explained that the bet, he explained to Roy how, what the bet was all about. 
He explained that the fans, uh, they're not going to know that that's a shoot. <laughs> you know, they're going to advertise this as a shoot and the rest of the matches aren't. You know, he says the fans aren't going to be a shoot, not going to know it's a shoot, but all of the wrestlers will because these promoters are going to tell the guys that, hey, here's what we're what's going to happen, you know. So, so each promoter's got his own crew of wrestlers. And uh, since this is going to be a shoot, the losing promoter's crew is going to be instantly out of work. <laughs> their jobs are going to be gone. If their man don't win, they're done, you know. So the fans are going to be involved, but it's the wrestlers who have their livelihoods at stake. And those dudes are seriously involved in this. So they're involved to the point that Dutch figured it out. And Roy saw it when he had told him about it. Dutch says anything can happen in this. He goes, uh, especially at the end of the match, maybe something even worse is going to happen. Because these guys may come to the ring. They may attack us. <laughs> you know, he may. It's a crazy situation. So Roy understands the situation and he agrees to go with Dutch to Houston, Texas. So let's talk about the trip alone from Amarillo to Houston in 1922. Uh, Dutch is, a, by most standards at this time frame, he's a wealthy guy. Uh, he owns, in fact, one of the first Model T Fords that's ever made. This is 1922. There's not a lot of cars around. And uh, that's a problem. And because there's not a lot of cars, there ain't a lot of highways either. So you can't just get on the road and drive all the way to, from Amarillo to Houston, you know. And then they, called them, they called them pig trails back then. Yeah, you know, and, and sometimes the pig trail ends, you know, and it'll right. end out in the middle of a pasture somewhere. And, and, you know, what do you do from there? So they took along wire pliers and they cut the fences, these pastures, and they drove through the fences. And, uh, you know, they, they figured a way to get from Amarillo to Houston. Took them four days. They no slept doubt. at night on the side of the road or in somebody's pasture or wherever they got ready to finally stop. So when Roy gets there, it's the first time he's ever been in a real wrestling dressing room. He's only wrestled on the ballet. He hadn't gotten that far yet. So in the dressing room that night, Roy tells me that nobody spoke to either one of them, either him or Dutch, none of the wrestlers in that dressing room. There was so much at stake, I can imagine, for the wrestlers, all of them, and for the promoter that night that uh, there's a lot of pressure in that dressing room. <laughs> My God, you know, that this guy sitting here that they don't know is going to go in there and he's going to decide their future for them. And uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a bad deal. So I asked him, you know, he, he, he told me, he said, I, I was even feeling pressure, you know, because I wasn't in the shoot, you know? So I said, well, how was Dutch dealing with it? And he said, Dutch was as cold as ice. I think that's the way he put it. Cold as ice. I mean, you know, this guy had no, he had no feelings. So uh, when they left the dressing room to go to the ring for the main event, Dutch told him uh, just as soon as they got leave, ready to leave the dressing room door, he said, I want you to get on my back just as close as you could. So uh, Roy asked him why. And Dutch had this really deep uh, accent, you know, and, uh, and he said, <laughs> Roy says, well, why? And Dutch says to him, he says, uh, uh, so you get the knife, <laughs> the knife. <Wow. laughs> and meaning, you know, somebody's liable to try to kill me on the way. To the ring. Right. And I want you to get the knife. <laughs> so this is a hairy event. I mean, you know, this this is this ain't a normal thing that's happening here. Probably hadn't happened, uh, maybe hadn't happened uh, anymore since this one goes down. But uh, and and Roy said Dutch never said another word after he said that to him, uh, go, leaving the dressing room. So when they got in the ring, Roy said he looked at the that both dressing rooms and there's a big old big old arena. And he said every wrestler in both dressing rooms were lined up against the walls of the dressing room. He said he, he, said he got to thinking, well, geez, man, do you think they're all there ready to attack us? <laughs> you know, are they going to come to the ring? What in the heck is going to happen here? You know, so he said the crowd was so loud that he thought they must have known that it was a shoot. <laughs> it was like, wow, they, listen how loud they are. You know, they've never seen Dutch Mantel for sure. And, uh, you know, uh, th this is crazy, you know. So when Dutch gets announced, he gets booed. Uh, and and uh, when his opponent got announced, uh, he got cheered. Well, obviously, his opponent's the fan favorite. And uh, there's another another little uh, bad point for, for Roy and Dutch. They're the heels there. Uh, they're in a bad spot. So 
you know, before I describe this match, I, I think I need to preface it with a little bit of a warning, you know, for fans out there listening, especially the ladies. This is no ordinary match, and I've kind of laid the groundwork here. And uh, when I say it's a shoot, uh, in this case, it, it's not a pretty thing. So, you know, just, uh, just be prepared. So so the bell rings, okay? So Roy said the two of them circled each other uh, for, for a little bit there, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, feeling each other out without even locking up. And when they finally did lock up, Dutch's opponent, he pushed Dutch back into the ropes. Roy said his first surprise was that Dutch didn't leg dive him or Dutch didn't, didn't make a wrestling move. He didn't try to get him on the mat. He didn't go for that quick submission. He, and he couldn't figure out what is, why, why didn't he take the shot, man, to right there to end it real quick. So when uh, the guy pushes Dutch back in the rope, the ref moves in, uh, and he's on Dutch's left side, and he tries to break the two men apart. Uh, but then he leans forward into Dutch's sight line, almost like this is a setup here, man. You know, they, <laughs> he's, he's in, he could have been involved in the finish and, and wanting to, to help decide who's going to win this thing. So once he leans in there in Dutch sight line, the other wrestler threw a big old right hand, threw a punch. It didn't start with any wrestling. It's going to start with a punch. And the wrestler threw a big right hand thinking Dutch couldn't see it coming. Because of where the ref was. The ref had leaned in so that uh, Dutch kind of maybe blocked his view and he wouldn't see that big right hand coming. But uh, Dutch saw it and he blocked the right hand and he did something Roy said that he'd never seen him do. And I was like, wow, you probably had seen everything. What did he do? And he said he threw a punch. First time he'd ever seen him throw a punch. And uh, he said Dutch countered with a right hand. And uh, he said when he hit him, uh, he said that the shot, the punch could be heard above the roar of the crowd. He said it sounded like a gun had been fired in the building. Dutch's opponent, the guy that was wrestling against him, his knees buckled and he said he wobbled backward. And uh, Roy said he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He said the guy's left eye was dangling below his cheek on what happened, what appeared to be just little cords of string holding his eyeball. <laughs> keeping it from falling on the floor, on the mat. The blow it was so strong and so hard that it broke the orbital bone that goes around your eye that keeps it in the socket. It broke the bone at the bottom, and his eyeball fell out of his face. Oh, my Lord. Wow. <laughs> so, and you know, and when that happened, the guy instantly, he dropped to his hands and knees, and he started to vomit. And, uh, you know, Roy said that he didn't understand. He didn't know why. But he said later on, Dutch explained it to him. Dutch explained it that, that uh, you know, it was the body's natural instinct, you know, because uh, his equilibrium was destroyed instantly. You know, he, he had one, if you can picture this, and it's pretty hard, but his eye that's still in its socket is looking out at the crowd and his other eye is looking straight down at the mat. Holy cow. So full vision in both eyes and one eye is out of the socket. Yeah. Yeah, he's got the vision still, but one eye's looking down and one eye's looking straight out in a totally different direction. And it just it it, it just his equilibrium just went crazy and he just it made him sick, instantly sick. So he dropped on his hands and knees and the referee rang the bell. Oh, it's over. I mean, what are you going to do after that? This thing's over, right? And the match only lasted less than two minutes, you know, and the referee raises Dutch's hand and the crowd's just silent, shocked. They're like, wow, did you see that? And, you know, I can imagine what they were felt like, you know, and then the opponents, uh, corner men, and they had some guys. So there was a couple of other guys that attended them to the ring, uh, Dutch and Roy to the ring and the other ring had their opponent their their corner guys and the corner guys jumped in the ring they brought a towel they took the eye and put it back in the socket and they put the towel over his eye oh. and they got him out of the ring and they took him straight to the dressing room this over the match is over you know uh royce said uh, dutch lingered in the ring he, he didn't want to go right away and leave the ring and he couldn't figure out why he didn't want to get the hell out of there you know and uh, so he waited till the opponent, his opponent was carried off to the dressing room. And then so Dutch told Roy again before they got out of the ring, he said, uh, 
get back on my back again, obviously, you know, because, uh, you know, somebody's going to get me maybe with the knife on the way out of here, you know. So Roy gets on his back. And then when he leaves the ring, he does something Roy ain't expecting. He, he don't want to go to his dressing room. He, he, he starts to go to the opponent's dressing room. So Roy's going to follow him. You know, what the heck's he going to do? You know, he's just, he's, he's taking orders. Dutch is the man. So when they get to the other guy's dressing room and they enter the door, the guy that's hurt, he's sitting there. He's on a stool. He's got his head lowered. He's got a towel uh, over his eye uh, to keep it in his socket. And they're about to take him to the hospital, obviously. And Dutch walks over to him and he pats him on the shoulder. And uh, when does, the guy looks up. And as soon as he sees who it is, he got, this guy just knocked my eye out. What's he doing here? He jerks his head back. He's like, whoa, don't beat me. You know, no more. You know, and uh, and and, and Touch, Touch has patted him on the corner and he gets his attention. And uh, he says one sentence to him. Uh, Roy's close enough. He can hear what he says. And he says in this Dutch accent, he says, uh, I'm glad you quit. He said, uh, I was already whooping at that other eye. Oh my God, you better be kidding, Ron. That is absolutely crazy. There's no wonder your grandfather was so tough. So that that's just hard to it's just hard to uh, imagine or fathom that the crowd endured that, and then this guy makes it back to the dressing room, and then eventually to the hospital. Any idea if the guy was okay after that? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know that 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 turns out that it's 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 not it's not it's an uncommon injury, but uh, right. but it's you know it's something that you can get by, and they, you know they basically they 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 you you probably uh can't use that eye, and they have to they have to put something over your face to, for in order for the bone to reconnect, but the bones grow back together, and your eye stays in the socket, and you get totally past it. It's not a long term injury. It's not a permanent thing, yes. but uh, I guess it's but, uh, it's hard to imagine that back in the what, what early twenties when this when when did this happen? Yeah, nineteen twenty-two. That they had the ability to repair that when you go to the hospital. That's the, that is that's just incredible. How do you follow that, Ron? <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna move ahead fifty-four years. We're gonna go to July twenty-third, nineteen seventy-six. It's pretty hard to follow that. <laughs> We're going to go to to a time frame when wrestling has changed dramatically from that time frame. I can tell you that. So uh, we're going to return to 1976, the red hot summer, man, of 76, when Southeastern's beginning to really see this unprecedented growth, man. The territory is just exploding. And uh, uh, let's take a look at the big crowd. Friday night uh, in Knoxville's Chilhowee Park, July 23rd, 1976. This card has seven matches on it compared to the normal five. Uh, the opening match was another newcomer. It's a new baby face that has a really good amateur background. His name is George McCrary. And uh, he's going to open the card against the Australian Bill Dundee. Good first match. Uh, second match was another good match. Tommy Rich, who's just young and driving and digging and want to be good. And he's in the ring with Norvell Austin. Uh, so you open it up with two good matches. The third one is another great match that night. Ron Wright is returning to face Louis Tillette, but this time Louis doesn't have Don Carson in his corner, and neither does Ron Wright have Robert Fuller to help him out. So it's just Wright on Tillette by themselves in the third match. The fourth match of the night is a testament to where Southeastern Wrestling was headed in the summer of 1976. This match is just an unbelievable match for four matches down from the top of the card. It's Bob Armstrong against the great Mephisto. Two superstars in their first meeting ever is the fourth match on the card. There's three main events on this card. The first is Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings uh, get a shot at the new Southeastern Tag Champions, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger. The second main event was a loser leave Southeastern match with Robert Fuller against Don Carson. And the last match was a Southeastern championship match. Professor Tortanaka managed by General Homer Odell defending his title against me. It was going to be my first match back after the eight week rehab from that shoulder dislocation that I'd suffered at the hands of Tanaka in the right. Southeastern slaughter of June 4th of 1976. So, and two of the three wrestlers that got hurt on that night, June the 4th, Don Carson and myself, two of us are back in action 
So before we get the results of this great card, let's let's go back six days to the TV of Saturday, July 17th, 1976. This one's going to contain several videos from the action uh, the night before, the Knoxville card of the night before. And this TV, again, uh, has an actual audio clip from that original show in uh, 1976. And very happy to have these audios. And uh, I think we'll have some more next week as well. So this TV opens with video from the night before in the amphitheater in Knoxville. The list opens up at the set with Don Carson. The entire background, again, that set is placed on the chroma key side. There's a still shot, video shot, 10 feet high, 15 feet wide of Ron Wright, Louis Tillet, and the referee, all three of them colliding in the middle of the ring. It's a still shot. It, does, it shows their, their heads all hit together. And uh, they're all still on their feet. And that's the shot there. Les announces while there's shots in the background, all the live matches for the show that day. And then he turns his attentions to the old inimitable Don Carson sitting next to him. And he thanks Don for joining him. And uh, he explained what fans were about to see. They're going to see this match that's behind them on the screen that's not moving. They're going to see the end of the Brass Nucks match from the night before with Ron Wright against Louis Tillette that was managed by Don Carson. So Don cut him off <laughs> and right away, as Don was pretty good at, and kind of took over the interview. And he became the show's director, too. And, and he was the one, instead of, uh, instead of Les saying, okay, uh, Bill, who was our director upstairs, okay, Bill, uh, roll the tape. Carson said, roll the tape. And then the tape immediately showed uh, all three of these guys had collided, and then Carson got in the ring. And he walked slowly and deliberately, didn't have to be in any hurry. Referee's down, Ron Wright's down, everybody's down. He's the only guy in the ring. And he goes around Ron Wright, and uh, Ron Wright's about to try to get on his feet. He's, one of the, he's the first of the three to get to his feet. And Carson is describing the, the action at this point. He's telling, I went over there, you know, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> so Les wanted to get involved, and he said something like, well, well, what are you doing over there? And he said, I went over there to help Ron right up. You know, he's clumsy. <laughs> so then Les got another couple words in, and he says something about, uh, you know, what? look, uh, I believe you're loading your glove, Don. And Don says, oh, no, no, my arm was itching. I was, I had to scratch my arm. I just, you know, I just thought it, I needed to scratch it. So it, then, then Carson gets serious again. And he told Leslie, don't say another word. And uh, he started screaming about Robert. And, and watch what that punk is going to do here. <laughs> so Robert entered the ring behind Carson, and he had, he had a steel chair with him. He had stopped on the way to the ring. He saw Carson getting in the ring, going to load his glove, but he just picked up a steel chair, and he slid in the ring behind Carson. And Carson had loaded his glove, but, uh, but he didn't know that Rob was behind him. So the audio and the tape has, has these 5,000-plus fans just going crazy trying to, to warn Ron Wright that Carson's behind him and he's got his glove loaded. But uh, Rob's standing behind Carson, and he's got something heavier in the glove. About this point, Rob raised the steel chair above his head as Carson was preparing to give Ron Wright the old coup de grace. And Carson screamed, just stop the video, stop the video. Carson liked to take over shows, so it was his way of doing business. And the director was really sharp. The director did just what he asked. The director stopped it, you know, instantly. And uh, there was the shot with Robert behind Carson's back with a steel chair raised above Carson's head. And Carson yells, uh, you know, while, while there's shots there and it's being held at steel frame, he goes, now what kind of a yellow dog coward would do what you're about to see this guy do? Well, the studio crowd, most of them had been to match the night before. They knew what was coming and, and they had no sympathy for him. They, they started, they popped <laughs> before he even hit him with the chair. The crowd popped. So then he screamed, roll the tape, and then bam, Rob hit him with that chair from behind, and down Carson went face first. And then Carson just kept, he he was totally enraged at that point. He, he went nuts, you know, and he just, he never shut up again as long as the tape was on until, uh, you know, then Rob, after he nailed Carson, uh, Tillette's about to get up, so Rob just gives Tillette a shot because the ref's still down. 
So uh, then he left the ring, and Ron Wright was the only one of the four that were in the ring at that point. There's three guys. I guess there's three there in the ring at that point. And uh, Ron Wright's the only one standing up. So Carson screamed at Ron Wright <laughs> as Ron Wright covered Tillett, and the ref counted Tillett out. Uh, the bell rang. It was a brass knucks match. It had Texas death match rules. It had a 30-second rest period. So the bell rang. And Carson just kept talking through the whole 30-second period, you know, and uh, Louie wasn't moving, obviously. Carson wasn't moving either. He's still laying there. They're both still flat on their backs, and uh, Carson just can't continue to rant about what is happening here. And Robert Fuller, and how did Robert Fuller, he just he couldn't say it enough. And the ref counted to 10, and they raised Ron Wright's hand. So Robert comes back to the ring. He he grabs Ron Wright's hand. He raises it. He helps Wright out of the ring and back to the dress room. And and uh, it just the shot still shows Carson and Tillett. They're still laying on the mat. They haven't even woke up yet. But Carson didn't stop. He's still being able to talk. So uh, Robert and Carson are booked the following Friday night on that 23rd card and a no DQ, no time limit match. At this point, that was what the rules were. That's what the match was going to be. But then I have another clip, uh, another one of those actual audio clips from the Hills Brothers in Knoxville. This is a great one. It's the right at the end of this interview. It's the last words that Carson speaks before he leaves the set. Now, he's had all kinds of say about what's going to go on and how upset he is and how that Robert Fuller's a no good coward and all this stuff. So if, if you wouldn't mind, Lou, uh, play this audio for us. I like to make an apology here. I like to apologize for Ron Wright. He has no guts that I give him credit for. Very little brain, but a lot of guts. <laughs> I'm going to stub that out because the next time I need that man, I want it in my game. I want it in the brass knuckles match where the man will stand up and the loser will be flat out. And I like for you, Cars uh, uh, Wright, to give me one favor. Don't quit on me. Let's hey, take a look let at the film while you fellas are talking about it. Have you ever right in your now. life lost a brass nut match? Never. So that makes you king of the brass nut, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. We're into the film right now. And, of course, as this match started, Wright's partner was not in the tent. You are like always came out to give him a hand. What business does he have out there? He had no money out there at all. He's simply enough to try to fight both men at his business. Where was his brother? Scared? I have no idea where his brother what was. What kind of a rug did he hide on there? Do I look like I'm back in condition, Mr. Thatcher? Well, you look like you're in the ring, and, uh, well, I don't know what condition I would call it for you, Don Carson, but certainly the glove is in evidence there. Well, let me tell you something. Let me ask you one question. At this time, it was a tag match, right? Yes, it was. And Ron Wright has tagged out, right? Watch, watch this right yes. here. Now, you watch the outcome of that match. Yes, watching Don Carson apparently <laughs> load that glove and deck Mike Stollard. Something that you don't know. Robert Fuller... Robert Fuller, the man that did what he did to this right over here, is going to pay for it. Robert Fuller, I challenge you right now to out there in the parking lot, at home, out there in the field somewhere, in the ring, on no time limit, no disqualification match. I want you. I want you, Robert Fuller. I don't care where, how, or when, if it's today, tonight, or in the morning at 4 o'clock. I want Robert Fuller, and Robert says that I'm going to get. I'll get him if it's the last thing I do, and when I do, the people of Knoxville, Tennessee, and the people of Kentucky, and North Carolina, and New York. And so Carson went to the ring for the first match of the day, as soon as that, that video was over. And he was mad. So he pretty much destroyed Tommy Gilbert, who's a pretty nice young star out of, out of Nashville that's uh, becoming a pretty good, pretty darn good wrestler. But, uh, man, at this point, Carson's really pretty, he's, he's very upset about what's going on. So, Robert, after this match is over, Carson just quickly just dispatches Tommy Gilbert and just goes to the dressing room, and the crowd's still booing him and they're, they're taunting him. and and messing with him. And so Rob comes out and then he's, he comes out for the two minute interview after this match is over. And uh, he's going to talk supposedly about the no DQ and the no time limit match for the following Friday night. So as soon as the interview starts, he's got two minutes. Rob asked less. There was a phone that sat on the right hand side of the set. And that phone connected you upstairs to you could speak to the production room. 
And Rob says to Les, he says, why don't you get on that phone, Les? Why don't you get the Southeastern official that's up there watching the match? I want to change this match that's scheduled for no DQ and no time limit to a loser leave Southeastern match. And uh, the fans exploded. They were like, wow, heck yeah, you know, you're going to run Carson out of here. So Carson hears it and he comes back in the studio and he starts screaming. Les is on the phone and he's screaming at Rob and uh, they, they're, they're getting pretty close to getting into it right there at the desk. Les is trying to get an answer. So Les spends about a minute of the two minute interview tr- talking to somebody on the phone and uh, then he hangs up the phone. Carson and Rob are face to face and Les steps between the two of them. There's about 30 seconds left in the interview. And uh, once he steps between them, he says, uh, he looks at both of them. He says, it's a done deal. You two are in the loser leave Southeastern match next Friday night. So the crowd erupted again and Carson erupted too. He was saying, no, no, <laughs> you know, what the heck? No, how did this happen? So, you know, fine first segment, man. Amazing first segment, actually. Now the card has changed from a no DQ, no time limit match to a loser leave town match. That's made this card a lot stronger card. So Les promised the week before that uh, Southeastern was going to next week on the TV because it's rating period. We're going to give you a TV championship match. So Tommy Rich and Rocky Smith are in the ring and they're introduced. And the new Southeastern tag champions, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger, they enter the studio and boy, did they get the roars from the crowd. Uh, These guys are getting over quick. Uh, This German team is special. This was one of the best TV tag matches I ever saw. Golden and Stallings. They came to the set, sitting with Les. They're actually wrestling these two Germans the next Friday night. And uh, it was a long match by TV standards. It was about a 15-minute match. And uh, Stallings and Jimmy, they made some great points as this match was in progress. And they really put these Germans over because they were a great team. They couldn't say that they were bad. You know, and they said that in order if we're ever going to beat these guys for the tag championships, we're going to have to wrestle our, our brains out. We're going to have to do our very best. So the Von Steigers won, and they used a lot of teamwork in the finals of this and the final minutes of this match. And uh, then they came to the set with less. And it's time for the next two-minute commercial. They were pretty good talkers, these two guys. And they focused on their hatred for the United States. And what they did is they followed in that old tried-and-true mold of the of hatred for America that had made the world tag team champions, the another German team, the Von Brauners, who were world heavyweight tag champions, the Von Brauners, that made them so despised in the South in the 50s and the 60s, the Von Brauners, because they just hated Americans and they, they spent their entire time focusing on that fact. And so did these Von Steigers. They followed in that tradition of the Von Brauners. The personality profile was next. And it was with me this time. And it was going to be done live in Studio B. That meant that the people in the next studio could see it live. They're just right there in front of you. You're actually almost in their studio with them. And the following Friday was to be the first time I'd been in the ring since June 4th, 76, the night of the Southeastern Slaughter. Uh, Les and I took fans back to that night. We showed the video of what happened on June the 4th that we had still hung on to. And it was supposed to have been a single match between Dick Steinborn, the Mid-American champion, and myself. I was a Southeastern champion. The winner of that match was supposed to win both belts. And uh, Homer and Tanaka and Austin, they had other ideas that night. The video showed Tanaka getting in the ring, coming to the ring, and jumping in, and and, uh, showed him popping my shoulder out. It showed Norvell Austin jump off the top rope and the upper part of Dick Steinborn's back and hurt his neck. It also showed the ambulance taking us away uh, just uh, probably 20 minutes later. And Les and I talked about having to forfeit the uh, Southeastern TV trophy to Tanaka the day after that this this night occurred. And uh, Les brought up the fact that he felt Southeastern was doing the right thing to allow me a chance to win back my Southeastern championship the following Friday. Then they were going to give me a shot at the uh, TV championship that I had to forfeit to Tanaka the very next show on the following Saturday. 
Well, Homer and Tanaka has been in the back and they don't like this idea about, you know, having to give me all these championship opportunities. And uh, so they came out to interrupt the profile. You know, when they did, Les could see there's going to be a problem. The profile's just about over anyway. And he got between Tanaka and I and, uh, and the studio crowd, boy, they were very much looking for something more. And, and he called for the director to go to black. And the stage was set at this point, uh, not only for the following Friday, but the next TV as well at this point. So Bob Armstrong was supposed to wrestle on the next TV show, and he's going to be in that third match. And he set the TV studio on fire, man. I mean, Bob is really over at this point. Uh, and he had a great match. He wrestled against Australian Bill Dundee. And uh, Bob was already a sensation. Like I said, man, he was really over. And every win he got at this point, it was just making him a stronger star. So during this match, the repulsive, I'm going to call him repulsive because I can't really, scary, repulsive, uh, I, don't, I don't know the proper adjective to describe the great Mephisto, but he joined less at the set. And Mephisto got right to the point. While the match is going on, Armstrong's in the ring. He told Les a little story about the Muslim people and how they believed that uh, that you had to confront evil. And America was the most evil place on earth. And he said uh, his people believed that it was the best to attack the strong first rather than the weak. And uh, then he got into Bob Armstrong and he said, uh, you know, and, and what I see up there in that ring is with his. He had that, uh, you know, that Arab accent. You know, what I see up there is the strongest to hear. And uh, that's who I want. I want that Bob Armstrong. And uh, so then he even got up and he, he left to go like he was going to get in the ring. And uh, everybody in the studio just, they were into the match. But when they see Mephisto leave the set and he starts toward the ring, then they really got into the match. Well, Bob saw him coming too. And Bob pretty quickly finished off Dundee. And he recognized the challenge from Mephisto. And uh, he he... <laughs> He opened up the ropes and and, and and set on one and lifted the other up, and he waved him in. He said, come on in, Mephisto. Come on in. Oh, the crowd really loved that, man. It's like, come on. Yeah, you want some of it? Come on in. And uh, the roar just got higher in the studio. And finally, Mephisto, he turned around and he went to the dressing room. So Bob had the next interview, and he went to the desk with uh, Les and he accepted. He 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 had heard Les said, well, you know, he kind of challenged you, Bob. And uh, and Bob said, well, heck, let's put it on. Let's get it on. And so Bob accepted the challenge of Mephisto and for the following Friday night. This car is just getting better and better, man, as the show's going on. So Tanaka finished up the show. Uh, he was in the last match. He was uh, already advertised to be wrestling live the, that week, too. And he gave some young job boy, boy, the experience of being sliced and diced. I can tell you that. To talk about it and to go and tell the story to his friends for the rest of his life. How Tanaka just uh, annihilated him. So let's coach the show with the remainder of the TV championship match. He reminded everybody next week, Ron Fuller is going to meet uh, Tor Tanaka for the television championship. It was the last Saturday in the month of July rating period. And, uh, we had done pretty much during the month of July all we could to explode those ratings for Channel 10 and for Southeastern Wrestling. All right, Ron, that is a lot of great information. It's just absolutely crazy what was happening that day. This seems like a good place for a break. We'll be back with more. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. The Stud had done every Super Studcast with or about something to do with wrestlers. Super Studcast number 31, part one, focuses on the unsung hero in every wrestling ring. Without him, there would be no wrestling. The Referee at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. The Stud talks to some of the best referees in the history of the sport about the horror of the sport, riots, and the danger from out-of-control fans that attack them. The most underappreciated individuals in every sport all over the world are our loyal and dedicated referees. Discover how important these individuals are to what happens in wrestling rings all over the world at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. Just two Super Studcasts to go. He tackled a taboo subject, Jim Barnett. He's back to do it again with referees. 
We are back with another Studcast. And remember, if you're a fan of the Tennessee Stud, you can find a ton of info about the Stud at tnstud.com. All right, Ron, what's next? What trail does old lightning take us down next? Well, we're going to do something a little different today, Dave. I was looking uh, lately at, uh, at these cards from uh, 1976 and how they seem to be improving and the talent improving. And and I got to thinking about uh, what had maybe happened but in the one year from between 1975 and 1976. And I got to thinking that this week I'd like to do something a little different. Uh, this week I want to kind of compare the, the two cards, uh, the the night uh, corresponding and July 25th, 1975's card compared to one year later, exactly the July 23rd, 1976 card. That's what we're going to do just to see what's happening with Southeastern. And I think this is going to be a really good way of, of seeing the growth of this company. So on July 25th, 1975, the opening match that night on that card was Dean Ball versus DeVoy Brunson. Uh, one year later, on the 76th card of July 23rd, it's George McCrary versus Bill Dundee. Uh, obviously, there's an upgrade there. Uh, second match from 75, second match was Rock Hunter against Les Thatcher. A pretty good match. Uh, the second match on the 1976 card that we're talked about in this show is Norvell Austin against Tommy Rich. And another pretty darn good combination. The card of 1975, the third match, was Ron and Don Wright against Frank Morrell and me. I was a heel at that point. In 1976, the third match was Ron Wright against Louis Tillette. Probably an upgrade for 76 on that one, too. In 1975, the fourth match was The Assassin versus Tommy Siegler. The 1976 fourth match is going to be Bob Armstrong versus the great Mephisto. <laughs> there's, a, there's a pretty whopping upgrade right there. And here's the real clincher. In 1975, that was it. That was the total matches that we had on that night of uh, July 25th, 1975. And we've still got three more matches to talk about that's happening on July 23rd of 76. So the fifth match for... This upcoming Friday night is Southeastern Tag Championship, the Von Steigers against Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings. The next match, the sixth match, is a loser-leave Southeastern match between Robert Fuller and Don Carson. Wow, that's a, that's a main event, you know. And then, and then the main event is the Southeastern Championship with me against Tora Tanaka managed by Omar O'Dell. So let's break this comparison down between the July 25th, 75th card and the July 23rd, 76th card, almost exactly one year later. So there are only two wrestlers on that 75 card that are still wrestling regularly in 1976, Ron Wright and myself. That's the only two. All the other people on that card are gone. They are not here anymore. There are only four matches and 10 wrestlers total on the 1975 card. On the 1976 card, there's seven matches and 17 wrestlers and managers. So we've almost got twice as many wrestlers and almost twice as many matches. It's amazing, that growth. There are only seven recognizable stars on that 1975 card. I'm talking about big-name talent. On this card of 1976, there are 15. There are more than twice as many recognizable stars on the 76 card than there was in 75. Okay. So in only one year, Southeastern Wrestling had added the following new guys to the talent roster in just one year. Bill Dundee, Norvell Austin, Tommy Rich, Louis Tillette, Frankie Kane, the great Mephisto, Bob Armstrong, Jimmy Golden, Kurt and Carl Von Stryger, Robert Fuller, Don Carson, Homer O'Dell, and Tora Tanaka. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and wow. really, that's a lot of future main eventers down the oh, line. Oh, yeah, yeah, years down the line. I mean, yeah. a lot of these guys are young, but they're already yeah. stars. 
yeah. and they're, they're going to be monster stars down the road. So, uh, yeah. and yeah. maybe the most telling statistic of the whole deal is the attendance. In 1975, that car drew 3,000 people. In 1976, on the same night, it drew 5,500, almost twice as many wow. people That's in awesome. one year. So the attendance had doubled in one year. And, uh, you know, I doubt that any wrestling company in the world at that time had such a significant attendance and, and talent improvement in just one year as Southeastern had had. And, you know, the great thing about it was that this was really the only the beginning for Southeastern. I mean, we're just ready to get cranked up. We got so much stuff happening the rest of this summer. We're going to break all the records for uh, Chilhowee Park. Uh, we've got the world champion coming in October. It's just amazing what's happening at this time frame in Southeastern. Uh, to me, it's pretty amazing that you've, you've got the figures. You knew the 75 card. You got the figures for the 76 card. How much science did you, and I know you were a very good businessman, how much of that did you retain? How much did you keep up with to compare date to date, year to date, month to month, Friday night to Friday night, Saturday night? How, how much of that did you keep up with, and how did you make a difference by keeping it? Did you keep up with it? And and if so, how much, uh, how much difference could you make? Well, I tried to keep up as much as I could. I kept up with all the, all the cards, uh, right. and luckily I did that. It became more difficult when I opened Pensacola. Southeastern went to Pensacola. You had a lot more bigger cities. Yeah. Uh, and it was a lot different, uh, a lot more difficult to keep up with every card in all these big cities. So that kind of changed a little bit. Attendance figures, I used to write them in my book. I still have some of the books that I did my booking with, and I have the cards in the book. I also right. have uh, newspaper ads, which I'm really lucky. I have all of these people that are providing information to me, which is wonderful, like the Hill Brothers with um, the audios. I have uh, people in Atlanta that send me every card from Knoxville from 1974 to the time I left. Wow. And then I have the book, and I wrote the figures of attendance in the books, thank goodness. So I have some pretty significant information, and, and not only do I see who the new wrestlers are and how the talent is improved. But I see the attendance figures and how they jump too from year to year. Thank goodness. I got all that stuff. Cause yeah, you uh, got a lot of fans who are helping you keep up with the history as, as time goes by on this thing. Yeah. You know, and if they ever want to go back and listen to these programs, they'll be able right. to see this. This uh, to me was a, is a nice little uh, deal. I may do this every once in a while just to compare one year to the year before. Because this is pretty earth shattering. I mean, you know, when you look at these, this change, it's just, it's really dramatic. You can see why the crowd doubles. You can see why the attendance goes yeah. from 3,000 up towards 6,000. And it's going to break 6,000 in the next couple of weeks. It really so, is remarkable. The difference in one year's time, no, no doubt. So, and, you know, no wonder because the stars grew, the crowds grew. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes hand in hand. The better your talent, the bigger your crowd. So, you know, I just keep pushing to get those better guys. That's cool stuff. All right. I think it's time we get that cold drink. Let's get our seat under the learning tree. What was our question of the day again, Ron? Well, this question, uh, it's, it's actually two questions. It comes from a gentleman named Todd Flynn. And he asked, uh, how did you as a wrestler protect your image, but still do jobs for promoters that demanded it? And also, did you handle wrestlers? that did not want to do job. Let's start this off by explaining hey, what a job is. You know? I mean, for some fans out there, they may go, well, hey, that's like getting up and going to work, right? Well, it's not really in the wrestling terminology. A job usually meant that you were told uh, that you weren't going to win. You were going to lose. Hmm. So, uh, you know, this fan, Todd Flynn, uh, you know, his question is, uh, you know, I did jobs, uh, you know, and then certainly I did. Everybody did. He's wondering, uh, how did I take care of my image when I was doing jobs? And, and did promoters demand that you do jobs? And, uh, and then the second question is obviously, uh, what do I do about wrestlers that don't want to lose? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so it's an interesting question. And I'm sure many fans out there wonder about the same thing. So let's answer the first question uh, how did uh, I, as a wrestler, protect my image, uh, but still do jobs for promoters that demanded it? 
And then I've explained, you know, what job means and uh, what it means. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's all about getting beat. So the first thing that comes to my mind in this question is that it wasn't only promoters that demanded that wrestlers do jobs. It was just a basic part of the business itself. Everyone, even I don't care if it was Danny Hodge or Jack Briscoe, some of the greatest wrestlers and athletes of all time did jobs. They all lost. So if you wanted to shoot, be a shooter, and you wanted to prove that you you could never be beat, all you had to do was just remain an amateur for your whole life, <laughs> you know? But the bad part about that is if you remained an amateur, you ain't going to make a dime wrestling. You might be a world beater, but, you know, you're never going to get paid to be a wrestler. So it was a pretty simple equation here. If you wanted to get paid to wrestle, you were going to have to get beat sometimes. It was a simple deal. And, uh, you know, it, if it bothered you, uh, that was your problem. So if you weren't going to shoot, <laughs> which meant go out there and, 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 and try to win for real and wrestle for real, then the question was, uh, for both the promoter and the wrestler, who's going to win? <laughs> if you're not going out there in the shoot, who's going to win at this case, in that point? So if the business was a work and not real, why should anyone in the sport refuse to lose? <laughs> you know, right? Why should right. anybody want to say, hey, no, I don't want to no. lose. Well, hell, I mean, uh, you know, it makes no sense at all. So another logical way to look at it is uh, if you never lose, well, why would anybody be interested in seeing you wrestle? Right. <laughs> think, think about it. You know, the question of whether you're going to win or lose was the reason for fans to buy tickets. They came to see whether you was going to win or lose. Well, so wait a minute. We're, we're sensitive, Ron. Why can't everybody have a trophy? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, I mean, it's kind of crazy. So, you know, but yeah. uh, I'll, and it's, 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 it's a little, this, this question is pretty interesting in a way. So yeah. your image by losing, it's only tarnished if you lost consistently. Now, if you're just a loser and a job boy and you go out there and everybody beats you, then, uh, yeah, you, you got to be concerned about your image. You know, you don't have one. So it mattered somewhat about who beat you when you lost. And then in the next match, did you beat somebody? You know, I mean, uh, you could lose one night and win the next night. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't wouldn't uh, decimate your image, you know. So if you didn't want to lose too much, all you had to do, it was easy, is to work a little harder in the gym. You go to the mat every day and then you work in the ring. You work on your microphone skills. You improve your looks and your skills, and suddenly you're winning more because the promoter sees that you're a better guy, and he says, hey, I got to push this guy, right? right. So and promoters rewarded effort to talent. If you worked hard and you earned the spot, you were winning. And if you didn't work hard and you didn't earn that spot, you were a loser, and you're going to get beat a whole lot. So yeah. – uh, Promoters, you know, after they rewarded that talent, uh, if you if they had to, they put you over. You know, if you had what they were looking for, they put you over. If you didn't, you got beat. It was as simple as that. So if you wanted it bad enough, you were the only one that could make those victories come or those loses go. It's up to how hard you wanted to work and how good you wanted to be at your profession. So when I became an owner of Southeastern and a booker in 1974, I obviously had a lot larger say in when I won and lost. Uh, and I realized early on that, that it had some influence in my decision to become an owner. You know, I realized that, you know, if I owned a company and I was the booker, I could probably win more matches. Well, <laughs> they, you know, but there's the downside that uh, I probably did more jobs as an owner of a company than any owner in the history of the sport. I tried to keep myself over and strong. Uh, and, and mostly winning, winning a lot more matches than losing, so that when I got these new heels or these new baby faces, or I was a heel in the territory, and I wanted to get them hot, beating me meant something. And that's what I did, you know? And yeah, it, helped, it, yeah. it helped you set up a future angle to make that star get over better, right? There you go. So, yeah. you know, I was a strong talent, but I was not not the strongest talent in my crew. I was never yeah. the strongest guy in my crew. Now, that's where many owners made that mistake that of always wanting to be the top guy. The problem was with being the top guy, 
is if you were always the top guy and all the other great workers out there looking for a job in your territory knew you wanted to be the top guy, mm-hmm. why would they come there? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm wondering if you would, would you cite a case was, is there someone that you would name that was like that? Like you're talking about an owner of a territory that did uh, not want to relinquish the title. Uh, Fritz von Erich, uh, Dory Funk senior. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. There were a lot of promoters and owners that, uh, wanted to be the man. Right. And, uh, that's great to be the man, but if you got somebody that's really a great worker and, and able to make you more money than you can make yourself, why the hell wouldn't you and give him that spot? Why wouldn't you want him there? You know, the fans are kind of hard to fool too. Cause they can see, they can see a match and they, 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 they tend to know, I bet he could really beat him if it were, if it were not, uh, set up. Yeah. They're, they're no talent. Uh, right. Fans aren't stupid. They can watch right. guys wrestle and they go, this guy's really good. Now, that right. guy's not very good, you know? Right. So yeah. uh, they didn't want to come into your territory if, if they knew you were going to be the star because they're limited in how far they can go. They're limited in how much money they can make because mm-hmm. they know that you're going to be the top guy, you know? So that would always, uh, they'd always choose to go somewhere else. That, that just didn't make any sense. So to me, vanity and pride have no place in the sport, none, you know, and it was especially stupid to me if you were an owner and you had vanity and pride and I want to be the man. This is one way I like to put it. I'd rather be on the third match of a sellout than the main event in a bad crowd. Right. (laughs) You know, success to me always ruled over your ego. I yeah. mean, I wanted to be more successful than than my ego. I, I, I didn't have to have the big head. I just wanted to have success. So that's kind of my first answer for him. Now, his second question was, how did you handle wrestlers that did not want to do jobs? So this one is a lot easier answer for me. I had this conversation a few times with a lot of young wrestlers and guys that hadn't figured it out yet. And those that felt like that if they lost, it hurt them and they weren't going to get to be a star and all that stuff. So I like to explain it to those young guys in this way. I I used to say, if if you continually win and you never lose, your popularity is only going to rise to a certain point where fans are going to be a little disinterested in your matches because they know the outcome before the match begins. (laughs) They know you're not going to get beat. Right. But when you start to reach that plateau and you start to get a lot of wins and the crowd begins to question about, are you, whether, whether you're going to lose and maybe the crowd start to drop off a little bit, well, what happens to the house when you finally lose? So let's say you lose what happens to the crowd. Okay. The crowd is always bigger when a rivalry starts. When a guy's a big King Kong and he can't nobody beat him, he's got nobody to wrestle against that they care to see. So, you know, it makes no sense. So the basic premise of any angle that's worked is someone's never losing, he's never losing, and then all of a sudden, he's beat, and business takes off. (laughs) You know, it's pretty simple, you know. And I never had a wrestler in all my years argue with that conversation after they heard it and they thought about it a little bit. If anyone in a sport couldn't understand this simple concept and they refused (laughs) to lose, they didn't belong in the wrestling business. It wasn't for them. You know, they need to go back to the amateurs and beat them all. You know, (laughs) if you do it, you got the skills, go do it. So I never had any sympathy for a fool. (laughs) I hate to put it that way, but uh, a guy that thinks like that's a fool. And I don't have any sympathy for fools. If he ever said no to doing a job, then I would simply had one word for them. Go. (laughs) You say no, I say go. I mean, you're not for me. Get out of here. So, uh, you know, Mr. Flynn, you know, I hope I answered your question today. And and I tried to answer it honestly. It's possible and to the best of my ability. And it's a darn good question. And uh, I'm really glad you sent it to me. And don't let the screen door hit you. All right. right. In the meantime, you can like Rod Fuller, the Tennessee stud page, automatically become friends with a legend on Facebook at Twitter. Follow him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. If you enjoy a good book, the stud is now an author. 
His action thriller called Brutus is now available on Amazon, along with the Kindle version as well. The autograph version is only available on the website tnstud.com. That's tnstud.com. Check out his new site on Facebook, a brand new site on Facebook, author Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 31, part one, now available. This one is about the unsung heroes of the ring, referees, the guys who get no respect from around the world. Would you like to say a few words about this new Super Studcast, Ron? Yeah, I would, man. Uh, the, I, I've, I've done all of my Studcasts have been about wrestlers. And and there's an unsung hero in every damn ring, and it's that referee. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think the referees deserve something. And in this, in this one, I'm talking to referees from all over the world. I'm going to talk to uh, Larry Brock as an example. I'm going to talk to uh, Alfonso. Uh, I'm talking to Nick Patrick, just uh, uh, Mac Murray, the referee, that my head referee in Southeastern. A lot of referees around the country. Because I feel like these guys, they they never got the recognition that they deserve. So I'm going to do one. Super Studcast 31 is going to be about referees, that unsung hero in the ring. I, I'm looking forward to it. That actually is out now. Part one is out now. And without a referee, you just don't have a match. All right. So where are we headed next week? Well, we're headed into the last Knoxville match of July 1976. And we only got two weeks left before we're going to break the all-time Chilhowee Park record crowd. Uh, today's training, uh, well, you know, will be the first one that we're going to do the next today's training. We did this one again today as a as a shooter. We're going to do the first one we've ever done on wearing that promoter's hat next week. Southeastern is going to begin to get involved in charity events, which is something uh, to benefit the community, it's something that helped that company grow into the company that it became. We're going to start laying the foundation for the upcoming NWA world title match with Terry Funk in October. The next learning tree question is about Ric Flair in the 1980s, about his dropping the world title for only a few days here and there, wherever he went sometimes, uh, how I felt about that. It's going to be a really good one next week. I look forward to it. And I want to welcome the tremendous number of new Studcast fans that are joining us each week now. Uh, we seem to be catching on fire here in the Studcast, just like we were in 76. And uh, I want to thank all of you that have ridden with me for these past three years. And uh, may God bless all of you. Another job well done, Ron. This is David Summers thanking you for listening and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.